Blog Talk Radio. Curvy little uh, blog talk radio peeps in the chat room. I see Michael and Sherry and AJ and a bunch of other people. You are listening to Oralingus with Timber Dalton. I am Timber Dalton. Intelligent but dirty. It is Sunday, December 19th, and um, tonight we have guest author India Wilson, author of The Not Artist, and we're going to be talking with her about her book. And I just a little bit reminder to my um, peeps in the chat room, the live chat room we have going on while the show is live. Um, you guys are on a slight time delay. So uh, it's like, I think, a five to seven second time delay from the software. So don't worry about that. For everybody who's listening to this after the fact, remember, you can join us during one of our shows and you can participate in the chat room while it's going on. If you can't make one of our shows, you can always hit us up on the uh, the blogtalkradio.com backslash Timber Dalton and download it later. So uh, how are you doing tonight, India? Terrific. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Um, so let's just start the ball, ro- the ball rolling right off the bat. Um, tell everybody about your book, The Not Artist. Well, more importantly is how I found out about your radio show. I mean, that to me is kind of amazing. There's these cultures within cultures and worlds within worlds. And I didn't actually even know that FetLife.com existed until somebody who read an early copy of the book and who um, is part of that sexual community and spends time on FetLife told me about it. So I got on there and got into, there's a kinky intellectuals book club, so I got to be part of that group, and then there was one that was a rope bondage group because the the main character in the knot artist is a dominatrix who specializes in rope bondage. And then there were all these other groups, and I thought if I join all these groups, I'll go mad. I mean, there was like the toe sucking group. There was every group you could possibly imagine. Oh yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, more than I actually had ever imagined. And one of the fat lifers who is a big fan of yours and started to correspond with me and read. I, we gave the publisher gave away a bunch of copies of the Not Artist, and she got one. And she said, oh, there's this fabulous radio show of an author I really love. And I just thought it was amazing what you were doing. I mean, you have this huge production of your own book, and then you figured out an even deeper way to connect to the people that are interested in what you're doing. I think that's quite amazing. You know, isn't America an amazing place? Yeah. Right. Anyone can be president, and you too can have a whole publishing industry you know, right there in Florida, right? Well, I wouldn't say it's a publishing industry because I do have, uh, I've got publishers that, that are, you know, really been great. I've been really fortunate. I got, I got hooked up with Siren, who was really big, and I call Siren my cash cow publisher because the bulk of my books are published by them. But it's, it's a lot of work. It really is. It's, it's, you know, especially when you're, you're trying to write and when you're trying to do self promotion and, uh, and everything. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. And I don't think a lot of writers that are just getting into this, they think they write the book and that's the hard part. And actually, to me, writing the book is the easiest part. It's like everything else that goes along with it is just that's the that's the job of the job right there the writing is icing on the cake so <laughs> it's a pleasure it's the part that we're totally well, in control you. of 
You know, yes. we're, we don't have to answer to anyone while we're doing that. And then, as you said, the marketing, well, I mean, usually if you're published by a traditional publisher, it's out of your hands entirely. I mean, you're lucky you have a good one that's done well by you, but for most people, I mean, even with Harper Collins or Alfred Knopf, I mean, you hand in a book and a year and a half to two years later, it physically exists in the real world, and you haven't been consulted about anything since you handed it in and, you know, looked at your galleys, and then you have absolutely no way to promote it because you're not included in the process, which is sort of the beauty of the Internet is that there are so many avenues that that one can pursue like you are with the radio show. I mean, that's really innovative and gutsy and a great other way to reach out to a community which I suppose in the olden days would have sat around and you'd done a reading. But, you know, there aren't any olden days because there's almost no more brick-and-mortar bookstores, right? Right. You sort of have well, to create your own. And I think there's there's a there's a big misconception, too, about a lot of people who don't know the ins and outs of the modern publishing era. They think that it's all about, ooh, I'm going to get published, and then my publisher is going to put this money behind my book and promote it, and then I can go on a book tour, da-da-da-da-da. No. Unless no. your name is Stephen King or, or Dan Graham or yeah. Daniel Steele or somebody like that right. who's an A-lister, proven cash cow author. Um, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, when you see end caps in like Barnes and Nobles and stuff where they've got these collections of books, publishing houses pay for those books to be placed unless it's a smaller bookstore and they're like, oh, managers pick or something like that. But right, most of the time, right. publishers have paid co-op money for those books to be placed in that spot. And unless you are a, you know, a name or somebody that they're pretty sure you're going to sell really good and, and the thing is, a lot of authors into the business, they think, oh, I want a real book in my hands. Well, that's fine, but I want a real check. And independent <laughs> publishing now, seriously, I mean, I was that way when I started. I was like, you know, I want to I wanna have a real book in my hands until I realized that, yeah, you can make money as a independently published author with these small houses. And my books do get into print. Most of my books are in print. Some of them are, but most of them are. And, you know, it's... It, the traditional publishing model, yeah, it's make or break, but my theory is I can sit around for 10 years with a manuscript gathering rejection slips because it's not just it's just not right for this house or this editor or whatever, or I can be making money and I'm making money. So it's like, you know, it's just you have to you have to do what's what's best for yourself and in my case what was best was to try to get out there and be productive and the funny thing was a few years ago my husband and I went and saw Jim Brickman in concert I'm not sure if you know who that is he's I he's don't. had a okay he's um he's I, I don't know exactly what genre he'd be classified but he's got a couple of um of holiday songs out that if if you heard him you've probably if, if I can't I'd recognize I, it right yeah exactly but he's he's pretty well known he's a best-selling you know music artist and everything he started out writing advertising jingles and one of his jingles was the puppy chow commercial don't treat your puppy oh like a dog, dog dog give him puppy chow that was Jim Brickman and at his concert we went to he took a break from playing songs and he was talking to the audience and he they did a thing they flashed some of you know things up on the screen he played some of these jingles that he wrote and I'm like wow I didn't realize he wrote that. So if Jim Brickman can start out writing ad jingles, then, you know, yeah, eventually it'd be nice to be published with a big publishing house. But you know what? In the meantime, I'm making money. My books are selling and I've, I'm building a fan base. And I, that's what I tell authors, you know, forget 
that you forget being, you know, J.K. Rowling or Stephen King or Stephanie Meyer. You're not going to do it. That is the hitting, literally hitting the lotto. You have a better chance of being struck by lightning than being Stephen King. You seriously do, especially here in Florida. And, you know, we're playing <laughs> the capital of the world. So you are far better off finding a smaller publishing house that will be able to handle your book, getting your feet wet. In the, because people also, they don't understand that it's not just writing the book and submitting the manuscript. You get in there and then you have a lot of work to do. You have a lot of work to do. Um and it's, you know, people don't understand that they, they have this misconception about what publishing is. So basically, you need to get out there and work your tail off in the smaller, you know, indie publishing. And I even know some indie authors who also self-publish on the side now because they do have such a good following. But, and I highly caution people this, and this is going to be a topic of a future episode, but, but, but. Do not self-publish. <laughs> do not, do not, do not self-publish unless you know for certain that your editing skills are top-notch or you have a top-notch editor that you can pay to edit your manuscript because a lot of writers, they're great writers, but as far as being fine tooth comb kind of writers, I mean, I know I need editors. I'm, I've been told by several editors that I'm an easy edit, but I know that I need editors. If you're a writer that thinks you don't need an editor, then I got news for you. You need an editor because I have never well, think seen how many books, an editor. Think how many books we've read, even on a bestseller list, that even in reviews it says, wow, this book really needed an editor. And these are big right. publishing houses that pride themselves on having the creme de la creme of editors. And, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, even at the best houses, editors who all are wildly underpaid it's sort of the notorious part of publishing i mean they're oh, yeah. paid sort of you know like graduate school wages or something mm -hmm. they're yeah. way overworked they have short windows in which to edit even though it takes forever to get a book out once it's turned in and they just don't have the time i'm not even sure they have the will although i think it's a it's a job that involves a lot of love of the word they don't really yeah. have the time to, to put in the way, you know, Charlie Scribner did back in the day or Bennett Surf at Random House in the days when publishing was sort of a gentleman's industry and, and there was a long relationship between an author and an editor and a publishing house. See, right. I'm not so sure that the holy grail is for someone like you, gosh, I'd really love one day to be published by a major house because I think you'd be bitterly frustrated having been so proactive yourself in finding an audience for your books and finding a way to reach them, you wouldn't have any of that freedom at a big house. It would be vulgar and rude for you to insert yourself in any way. I mean, Well, not necessarily because, I mean, if you look at Laura Lay, I always hold her up as an example, and Maya Banks is really getting up there, too. Laura Lay started out at, I believe it was Laura's Cave, and now she's on every, you know, I go into Barnes & Noble and Books a Million, and I see her books all plastered all over the place in the romance section. So she, wow. she's a case study that she, you know, you can do it. And my, I'm seeing Maya Banks's books up there. Um, there's a couple other authors that I've seen that have really big online presence. Um, I want to say Laura Dane is one. Of course, Deborah McGilvery, she's, I've seen her books um, for, and I see her online all the time. Um, oh gosh, there's a few more. Um, and I'm trying to draw on a blank right well, now. Well, it may be that it, it may but, be that romance authors are in a separate universe because of the strong connection between the characters and the author and the readers, where they really do f develop a following. Sometimes I think even 
the the readers ha- have a confusion between the characters they love and the authors who wrote them in a good way. So maybe they develop more of a of a close connection. Maybe those publishers support it. I mean, I I, I just know a number of people in on you know on both sides of the of the table in in traditional publishing who sort of realize that the end is near because they've never the pub, the normal publishing if you want to call it that traditional publishing has never really caught up with the modern world and the internet and forget blog radio even terrestrial radio they're just right. sort of back in some world where you know books are just supposed to be uh sort of precious objects and if someone finds them they find them and if they don't oh well Mm-hmm. I mean, as you say, Barnes yeah. and Noble and those stores, almost every book now it, there's a payment of some kind to be on the shelf. It's mm-hmm. it's not that different from some salad dressing. I mean, no. there's hundreds of different brands of salad dressing, and each one has hundreds of different flavors. Mm-hmm. And every single one of those companies and bottles, the company pays for where it is on the supermarket shelf and whether it's there, low down, high up, eye level. Right. I mean, it's sort of gross that books are not entirely different from that in the big stores. In the small stores, mm-hmm. as you said, you're, you know, you've got the manager pick and stuff, but how do you get it to the, to the manager to pick it, right? Well, and that's the problem is because you've got so many independent bookstores now, it's, it's impossible to cover the market, and you're dealing with the big chains. It's almost impossible to break into unless you've got a big-name publisher behind you or you've got a proven sales track record. Um, you know, but you've got, you know, it's really hard. And that's the nice thing about independent publishing is you can build that niche audience, which, no, it's not, you're not going to be getting six-figure advances. I mean, it's just not going to happen. But you can make a steady income that you're not waiting three years to get your book in print. Usually the average time of, in my experience, has been anywhere from two to six months on the average. Some have taken a little more, some have been a little less, depending on the publisher's schedule, but versus, you know, anywhere from two to three or longer years at a yep. traditional publisher. Definitely. So, you know, independent publishers have a flexibility. So, okay, no, you're not going to be hitting, you know, millions and millions of people, but you have the ability to hit a more targeted niche. And the traditional publishers, the problem is they pretty much killed themselves with the returns policies over the years. The running joke used to be you can open a bookstore and all you had to pay for was your rent, your utilities, and your fixtures because the books were free. Because you didn't have to pay for the books basically until you were returning them, you know, for the most part. I mean, it wasn't exactly yep. like that, but that's basically what it boiled down to. That's, I mean, that yeah. really was. And it, it was, a lot It's of not really a business model. I mean, imagine yeah, another business where the where the, the merchandise comes and you can keep it on the shelf for a year and if something doesn't do well, because what, you just sat behind the cash register and did your nails, you send it back. Or in the case right. of paperbacks, you destroy the covers. I mean, that's exactly. So, I mean, I, that's why I felt really incredibly lucky that this couple were, by, you know, I was friends with them and I wanted to remain, I needed to use a pseudonym and to remain anonymous with this book. So although in my other life, whatever that is, I had been published before traditionally and with enormous success with some books and medium success with others and complete disgruntlement, honestly, with all of it because of the total exclusion of the writer from the process, whether it was the jacket design or, more importantly, how do you find people and put it in their hands Mm-hmm. I was really thrilled this couple said, we've been really interested in starting a small press and we'd like to start it with this book. 
And it, you know, it also didn't hurt the fact that there is an erotic nature to the book. Well, I mean, the main character is a dominatrix. There's a lot of pushback in America. It's a really Puritan country, as you know. Yeah, So if there's an erotic <laughs> element, it gets called erotica, and that's mm-hmm. either lowercase or uppercase e. And, you know, naughty? I mean, it's really absurd. Lady Chatterley's lover in the lifetime of some of the people listening was banned mm-hmm. from coming to this country. Right. We're really pretty. Yeah. We're pretty retarded in terms of our open lack of open mindedness as a nation. I mean, if yeah. you look at I don't know the British, right? I mean, members of Parliament are sanctioned because they were running around having I don't know wearing Nazi uniforms and us having a spanking party, and then it got videoed, and then you know, or someone else had the call girl that you know brought down Parliament. On the other hand. Everyone in those countries goes, oh yeah, you know, we know. That's what that's what people do. Ah, eh, those silly old people. And here it would be like off with their heads mm-hmm. that anyone would think of doing anything other than the missionary position, right? You know, or raising that red flag. So it it's very curious because the, the sort of brown paper wrapper issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean Henry yeah. Miller. Henry Miller, I I don't know. Is Henry Miller still considered something incredibly naughty? You can only hide in a brown paper cover <laughs> or, no, actually, or a nice on, men? I don't yeah, think so. Reading list pr- now, yeah, reading list now in high yeah, school and stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, and he's pretty raunchy, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you read it, I mean, in, even in contemporary terms, the guy's out there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's not holding back in any way. Right. Well, you know, it's just, and of course, times change and people change and what was seen as scandalous. You know, I mean, you can use the example of like rock and roll. I mean, Elvis was... Oh, Oh, you know, he had to appear on Ed Sullivan's show and not, you know, sway his That's hips. Right. That's and now right. he's classic rock and roll and looked for looked towards as, you know, an icon of the age. And then, of course, the Beatles, where everybody's like, oh, the Beatles. Well, now parents are, if if their kids want to listen to the Beatles, they're just tickled plaid because they're only listening to the Beatles and not some horrible rap music. Which, and you know, Ozzy Osbourne now is kind of, I mean, he was. You know, well, yeah, right? he's he's tame now, and he actually has a, a modicum of respect, you know, associated with him because of Sharon and his daughter and everything. I mean, it's like he's appearing in cell phone commercials. And can you imagine twenty years ago, You're Ozzy right. Osbourne being in a cell phone commercial? I mean, a funny cell phone commercial, family friendly one, basically, and making fun of himself for the you know not being able to be understood. So it's like, it's just you know, it's, times change, people change, and what we write now. Uh, you know, it's probably going to be, and I, I, it's kind of funny to imagine what's going to be considered wild and out, out of this world, you know, 10, 15 years from now, if, if what I'm writing now is considered, you know, wow, on the far end of the scale, well, what are we going to do to top that? I mean, that, that just kind of blows my mind in a weird kind of way, because I'm thinking, you know, it, it doesn't seem I can, I could get much crazier than I am now, so what's somebody going to come up with, you know? Yeah, no, that's really legality. true. Yeah. You, when you set out to write, were these the kinds of topics that is what appealed to you, or were you making a business decision and saying, you know, erotica is a niche, and I want to, I want to, I want to be a big fish in a small pond, so to speak? Or, I mean, which was chicken and egg for you? It, well, it just it was kind of an organic process, to be to be quite honest, because I didn't really set out to write erotica. I actually swore up and down because my idea of romance because when I was in high school I read Stephen King I read you know the Star Trek series I read horror I read you know Ray Bradbury um you know Hemingway and the classics and stuff like that but 
I was not a romance reader because I had seen like a Harlequin bodice ripper and I was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. This is so not me. You know, it was one of those things. And and then I happened to pick up Mary Janice Davison's Dead. And I, of course, I've been writing anyway. I picked up Mary Janice Davison's Undead and Unwed and I'm like, oh, they're calling this a romance. Because it wasn't in the romance section when I found it. It was like in a different section. But I looked at the spline. I'm like, it had romance. I'm like, wow, really? Seriously? This is considered (laughs) romance? Really? And I'm like, well, hell, this is, you know, this is my style right here because most of what I write, I, I won't say all of what I write, but most of what I write had an element of romance in it to begin with. So I was like, oh, well, you know what, maybe I can write romance. Well, then it was just a natural progression from there as I realized, okay, hotter sells better. I'm like, well, all right. And the the menage, I joke, the menage, I, I totally fell into it by accident because I happened to see author Jen Cole, who's become a friend of mine, I saw her posting a blurb for a delicious taboo on one of the email lists I was on. And I'm like, all right, now how the hell is she going to pull that off? <laughs> so that was the, seriously, that was the first menage, but I had never, I had no idea it was even a genre. I had no clue. And I, I read it. And I'm like, holy crap, this is really good. Holy crap. Oh my God. People write, holy crap, this is great. So I was like, Okay, then a few weeks later, I had an idea for for Love Slave for Two, and that's how it developed. And it just that was kind of my fun book to write after my grand. I joke that was my fun book to write after my grandmother died. That kind of took my mind off things in a good way, and I wrote that. And um, you know, it just it just went from there. And I and I just was like, okay, well, let's see what else I can do with these people. And I turn. I really do like writing the menages, even though yes, they're naughty. And some people, it's just not their cup of. But I like writing it because I like playing with the dynamics of 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 the, the different personalities. I like being able to play. It's yeah, you can play a hero and a heroine, or two heroes or two heroines, or whatever off of each other. That's fine. But when you got two guys and a girl, or three guys and a girl, and you're playing these different personalities, especially if the guys are involved with each other. Then, like in my my Love at First Bite series, you know the DS the the Deep Space Mission Core series, I've got the three guys who have been together for years, and then I'm throwing this girl into the mix. So it's their relationships with each other and with her, and as a group whole. But then I also have the other. I've got the Triple Trouble series where it's three brothers. So obviously they're not messing around with each other. So that's a whole different type of interpersonal dynamics going on. I love playing with that. I love playing with bouncing these people off of each other and seeing what happens. I mean, I think that's just great. That's what I like writing about the menage is the personalities. It's not even about the sex. I mean, it's it's about what can I do with these people? What what do they do to each other in the process of what they're doing? So, I mean, I just think it's so much fun. <laughs> I really Right, do. because that, that's those are always the relationships even outside of the bedroom. That are that are triangles are always interesting, right? That's when things oh, yeah. get tricky. Yeah, absolutely. So now, okay, enough about me. <laughs> let's talk about you, and let's talk about the um, the not artist, and um, tell our listeners about your book. Well, I mean, is there such a thing as an erotic political thriller? It's gone out to a bunch of blog reviewers, a number of whom said, "Oh, sure, we'd like to review," and others ones who said. Seriously, an erotic political thriller, is there such a thing? So it's sort of a curiosity, how do you, you know, there is no such exact genre, right? I mean, you can't micromanage the topic of a book. But a political thriller, you know, you mentioned earlier Dan Brown, Mm -hmm. that has elements of literal truth and then the, the fantasy that takes place. Well, if this is the truth of a financial situation or an interpolitical situation, what if? the sort of what if, and then in addition, 
there's an, a plot thread or the main heroine is involved in the erotic trade. I mean, that's her business at a very high level, the sort of intersection of the two. I mean, I like very much the what if. I mean, you enjoy the chess piece of how to move people in a situation, right? How to mm-hmm. how do they interact with each other? I right. sort of like the what if. And what if somebody were the most expensive dominatrix on the East Coast? Mm-hmm. And what if something terrible happened to somebody very powerful, important in her dungeon? Then what? What would happen? And I think the fun of the imagination is if you if you set it free in a rich enough sort of soil, you don't really know what's going to grow. And that's half of the fun. Mm-hmm. So as it evolved, I had to do some research about not just what some of her clients might want or or might um, receive, but also the political aspect. And that's another amazing thing about research on the Internet, where you would have had to go in the old days to a a library um, as a journalist years ago. You know, you look at microfilm. You actually scrolled through actual, you know, photographs of the New York Times. Oh, yeah. You know, Mr. Google, holy cow, you can just put in absolutely anything and find out, you know, what a peso looks like, what a peso's worth, or you want to set something in Karachi. Actually, another author told me this. I'm such an idiot. I didn't know this about Google Images. Mm-hmm. I w- I've never been to Karachi, and I don't have any desire to be there. But uh, in the second book in the series, it's called The Whipping Girl. There there are a couple of characters in, in Karachi, and I didn't know what the streets in Karachi would look like or a door or a building because obviously – you know, you could imagine it's like India, and you think you know what India looks like from movies or going there. But you put in Google Images, and you can say Karachi streets or Karachi street fair or Karachi cars, right. anything you want, mm-hmm. and there it is. Yep. So it's very fun because there's really nothing to stop your imagination. The the old dictum for writers used to be, write what you know. Mm-hmm. But really what you know can be also what you learn, what you exactly. see yourself in. What you say, I want to know this, and then you mm-hmm. learn it, and then you know it, and then you can write about it. There's a, an author I absolutely adore called Paul Watkins. I don't know if you know him, but um, no. when I first discovered his work, not, far from erotica, just an amazing author who, when you read his novels, you're absolutely convinced this man had to have lived this. And the first one that he wrote had a sort of awkward title, and he was at the time some obnoxious thing, like 22. And mm-hmm. he got a big New York Times, very positive review, years and years and years ago. It's called Night Over Day Overnight. And it was a first-person account of a young German soldier in the trenches in the last days of World War II, when Germany was losing the war. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing about the book was that minutia of the description of the helmet of the trench of the food of the towns of the townspeople as well as this unfolding historical drama and you absolutely could not shake in your mind the idea that this guy had to have been in those trenches but he was a 22 year old american who had turned out had never set foot in germany Mm -hmm. and i i just think that that um privilege as a writer to put yourself in a position and it sort of, I guess, some, for some actors, acting is like that, and become that other person or yeah. project that other person is pretty damn cool. And as you said, you know, the fun and easy part of writing, if you let yourself do it, is that process. The very process itself 
is pretty thrilling because you don't know, always don't know where you're going to go. You can right. even have a plan, and the characters take you somewhere else. Oh yeah, which is <laughs> quite an amazing experience, and probably anybody can have that experience. I mean. I think that everyone has an imagination, and some people have a gift and have trained themselves to be good writers, but I think everyone has an imagination. Yeah. So the fun of, even when you're reading, putting yourself in the shoes of the people you're reading about and having the whatever the vicarious thrill is, be it sexual, be it scary, be it you know fantasy and uh, futuristic, I think mm-hmm. that's, that the process that the writer goes through is the process that the reader goes through. If you let yeah. yourself really go with it, you know, you sort of uh, get carried away. Mm-hmm. So now, how did how did you do you, the, for the BDSM part of your research? How did you do your research for this book? Because I'm sure there's a lot of readers that are going to be interested in knowing that. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting having having had to choose anonymity because of another career and profession mm-hmm. that I have that would have been impacted negatively by, potentially negatively, I mean, one never has anything for sure, but potentially um, to hold the, for many people, to hold the idea that someone could be a very good, for instance, I don't know, lineman with the phone company, okay? Mm -hmm. You're really good at that. And you also happen to be an unbelievable stripper. They probably would not, well, I mean, it's not a great example. Let's say you were in a corporate boardroom. They wouldn't like to know you're also an awesome stripper. Do you remember, I don't know if you ever watched Ally McBeal, but the Portia de Rossi character at some point became wackier than Ally McBeal and got into um, being, I think either in porn movies or stripping or pole dancing or something. She was this very buttoned-down lawyer who was having this other life of doing something in the sort of the sex trade. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that people can sort of hold the idea that you could be good at two things or want mm-hmm. to do two things. So um, in having to choose that, that pseudonym and therefore an, 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 as well as anonymity in order to not confuse people in my other life, like, well, how could you know this? How could you write this? How could you mm-hmm. think this? Um, I don't think we want to really hang out with you, you know, right. um, professionally. So there are people reading it now who are convinced that India Wilson must herself be an incredibly costly dominatrix because – that part, her part of the book, her chapters of the book are in the first person. And -hmm. it's pretty immediate, and it's pretty sort of in your face because it's all up in her head, you know, her experience, her perceptions. But in fact, some fair amount of it was research, but I, and and I've been working on the book for a really long time, more than 10 Mm -hmm. years. And Mm -hmm. there was a time, eight or 10 years ago, when I was cautioned not to do any such research on the Internet. And I don't know now if that would still hold true, but it was a number of people had made clear to me, even if, and at that point I wasn't even, I didn't have the career, the other career that I now have that that Mm -hmm. could be jeopardized by this. Simply as a person that you shouldn't be going into websites where there's where they might capture your IP address or they might capture your email address even if you didn't put it in there that somehow you would be then a target of I don't know what I mean I didn't really understand the internet that well then not that I'm any genius about it now but <laughs> it, it it seemed that I'm I'm really bad I mean I'm a total technophobe but it seemed that that do, going that way was 
potentially you could I don't obviously what what is going to happen you're not a pedophile right you're not downloading child porn but right. somehow going to places where you might see that so instead I ordered a ton of books from Amazon just a ton I mean pounds mm-hmm. of books and they varied everywhere from like almost picture cartoonish like cheerful here's a safe way to bind people to PhD theses on you know what drives S&M and what sort of people uh you know are driven to this or that erotica mm-hmm. as as a lifestyle so sort of the, as well as some novels you know some uh works of fiction that dealt with it and i i just have to say that in the end of the day although some technical stuff you have to have it right or People like say on FetLife would read it and go, "Oh, please give me a break! That is like so bogus and so lame and so wrong." Other than that, I think the imagination is a pretty scary tool, because even if it isn't someplace you've been, if you just let go, mm-hmm. then you know you can go all kinds of places. You you have no idea. At least in my case, I had no idea why I went there or how I got there. Mm-hmm. There's something about the unconscious that when it's unleashed, you know, if you give it a job and you've kind of um, trained it to do its job, mm-hmm. then and you get out of its way, some kind of cool stuff can can uh, can occur. I mean, I obviously mm-hmm. would love to know from from people who do read it that are in the lifestyle if there's anything that strikes them as off not correct or not doesn't seem realistic although there's just absolutely nothing that anyone could do that anyone else can really judge right i mean there's every kind of uh permutation of kinkiness in this in well, the real world that that's true but i have seen people who there's been times where i've actually wanted to toss and you know wall bang a few books because like well one uh <laughs> One case was they had somebody being suspended with handcuffs, and I'm like, nah, no, sorry, thank right, you. Yeah, you would have yeah. broken their wrist. Had you right, so right. Usually it's technical aspects. That, I mean, right. the the play aspects, yeah, you can suspend disbelief to a certain You're extent right. for the most part. But it's like when, when there's a technical aspect that is just flat out wrong because it's that's not what would happen in real life. You know, that's what will throw me out. Like, one one case, I always throw this up, and I, I don't usually like to trash on other writers, but this is one case that's near and dear to my heart, is Christine Feehan in one of her books, she has a character who's in a wheelchair, and he's supposedly, you know, he's he's been injured, and I think it's one of the Shadow Walker series, and he's injured, and his, she's describing his, he, he uses a power chair for one thing, which is wrong, because an athlete of his caliber, I have never seen a wheelchair athlete of, that calipers that she described use a power chair, and I should know because my son is a wheelchair athlete. He's a top-notch junior is national right? wheelchair athlete. Yeah, so I know I'll this be for darned. Good for him. And, and, yeah, he was one of the youngest. Um, he was, at the time when he did the Gasparilla 15K, he was the youngest wheelchair racer ever in their 15K. He's been doing the wow. 5K for several years beforehand. So I know for a fact. And then she's describing his racing chair, which basically – is an everyday chair. So obviously she right. didn't spend five minutes Googling racing chairs to find out that racing chairs are basically three-wheeled devices Good that point. are more like the Grand Prix bicycles, like what, what Lance Armstrong races. I yes. mean, these are, we're talking $5,000 machines here, easily right. $5,000. So obviously she didn't do her research, and that book almost got thrown because I'm like, okay, if you're not going to spend five minutes Googling what a racing wheelchair looks like, 
why should I invest my time and money as a reader in your book? That kind of pissed me off. That's and, a good point. That's a good and, point. And and in my other life, I, I have also in the past written for films and television. And the Writers Guild, um, I don't know if they still have it, but they used to have this amazing service in any kind of subspecialty, narcotics, mm-hmm. AIDS, lesbianism. Well, I don't know. It wasn't called that. But, you know, it was called something like alternative sex styles or something. They had con- connections for you to official organizations and groups that would happily answer your questions, read your script, make sure it was accurate, you know, uh, depicted something correctly, just like what you're talking about. I'm sure there would have been, you know, some Olympic team that could have read that if they if she'd wanted to. Well, and you know, given it, her I always tell writers, don't be too specific on technical aspects unless you know your stuff because stuff like that. Because if she had literally taken, literally not even five minutes, just 30 seconds and Googled racing wheelchairs and pulled one up, she would have seen that this is not, you know, because there's like several major companies online that would immediately come up at the top of a Google search. Another one that got me is Stephen King's book, Insomnia. In a, in a former life, I ran a automotive repair shop with my ex-husband, so I know no quite a few things. Yeah, I know quite a few things about engines and engine repairs, and I know that engines do not throw tie rods. The tie rod is a suspension piece in the front of the car, and that one kind of, even though, yeah, I know there's some people that will call. But you know, but that's tie rod, but that's that a perfect. <laughs> that's a perfect example of what an editor should have done. You see, there he is at well, these top publishing firms. Not only does an editor should have caught that or had a question mark, but then there's the fact checkers and the copy editors, and all these things should have had all kinds of comments and flags in the margin. If you're lucky enough to be with a major publisher, that kind of stuff should be caught by them. Yeah, but you also have editors that like the one with the handcuffs that that I I always talk about. That that one got through at least one, if not two, possibly three editors, depending on the house. I know some houses have like – first, second, and third round editors, or first, second editors, and then they have, like, a proofing round. So it just depends on the house. So, you know, you're right. You know, That's really they just rely on. They expect the writer to kind of know, unless it's a, it's a do, you know, it's a horrible era, like they say Paris is in China. I mean, you know, <laughs> but, you know, most houses expect if a writer is writing something that the writer is going to get it, you know, correct and spell it correctly and do this. So, so a lot of times, yeah, especially if it's, if the edit, this goes back to the editors are overworked and underpaid. A lot of times they don't have a fact checker that's dedicated to, to that kind of stuff. So it's like, I always tell writers, like, unless you know, and, and somebody else told me once about a Christine Feehan book too, that she got something horribly wrong with a, with a firearm fact or something. I, yeah. I don't know, but, but it's like, if you don't know exactly what you're writing about when it comes to, I mean, you can, there's certain things you can kind of slough a little bit like, like cities and things like that. Like, you know, physical descriptions of stuff, you can kind of fudge those. But if you're talking about something very specific, like like a firearm or something, instead of saying, "Oh, he pulled out his nine millimeter Glock," da 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 da, if you don't know anything about guns, you just say he pulled out his semi-automatic handgun and fired. You don't get all because you're going to find at least one reader who's going to stop and go. If you get it wrong, they're going to stop and go, "Oh no, she didn't." And, that's right. That's you know, right. And that's you're going to pull them out of any anything you do that pulls a reader out of reader space is wrong. It's just really bad. So I tell people sometimes less description is much safer. I mean, if you know your topic inside and out, and you have somebody that knows the topic inside and out that can, um, you know, verify stuff for you, then yeah, 
you can get by with stuff. But it's like, and, and, and on the, the, the flip side of that is you're always going to have people that, like, especially with the BDSM stuff, BDSM stuff, that'll go, oh, well, I don't know anybody that plays like that because I've had people yeah, say right. that to me. And I'm going, um, excuse me, everybody I know plays like that. So I'm, you know, you're from a different part of the country or world or whatever. So fine. But, and I guarantee you, you know, and you can counter that with, well, okay. So you're saying, you know, everybody around the world that plays and, you know, there's not a single person in the whole world that plays like I'm describing. Well, mm, sorry, thanks for playing. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, the whole point is that it is open-ended. In fact, it, it was funny because. Um, at one point, someone who uh, was getting an MA from a top college but also called herself a dominatrix. I, I don't know that she did it. I, I think she. I don't think she did it for money, but she certainly went to clubs in New York City, spanking clubs in various places, paddles, okay. wherever, the, a bunch of clubs that are around. Yeah. And she looked at, I thought at one point that she might be helped. She was actually the ex-girlfriend of, of someone that I knew. I mean, I wasn't even actually aware of this uh, leaning of hers, if you will, because it's you know it's something private you wouldn't necessarily bring up over breakfast. You know, <laughs> it tends to be kind of like your private life. But somehow it came up, and I thought, wow, she could maybe be really terrific help in marketing. I thought down the road, you know, maybe especially once I realized I was going to be anonymous, maybe she could, I don't know, at, at one of these clubs pass out postcards or something, or maybe uh-huh. have an email list. And so she started to read it, and when Dominique, the main character, is refers to how much money she makes. And all of her clients are these incredibly high-powered men in politics, in uh, the financial industry, in the media industry, and and talked about some fee that she was paid, 20 grand or something. And this girl had read that and said, oh, the book's really terrific, but oh, man, this is so wrong. I don't know anybody who's paid more than a thousand dollars an hour mm-hmm. so i thought honey elliot spitzer just went down for paying a really <laughs> ordinary girl twenty five thousand bucks to just screw him normally mm-hmm. what are you talking about you know and just lie down CNN. honey let me lie down i'll get on top right yeah and now he's on cnn as a commentator i was like looking at him like holy crap that's the guy I, oh my god I know. and so, why do we want to care what he has to say yeah. We have a funny world. It makes celebrity out of the strangest bedfellows. But as you say, I mean, to say something could never happen is ridiculous. But this book, at the political intrigue part of it, is a, is very cinematic and very uh, fact-based. Well, you mm-hmm. take a fact. It, it's, I think it's called faction, right? You take a fact and then you make fiction of it. Well, yeah. It's based on facts and then, <laughs> and then what if. I mean, there's all kinds yeah. of novels like that. So this particular, I mean, that are just about that. So if you're going to research, in this case, Cuba and the factions in America that are pro-Fidel or anti-Fidel, trade embargoes, money that's frozen in America, where's the money? How could someone access it? Why would somebody want to pay a senator to help with a trade embargo to stop a trade embargo? You really better do your homework. You have to do your homework. And, you know, somebody who had read the book said, um, I, I, it was secondhand, I mean, the publisher was told this, and she wrote and said, wow, India Wilson really knows her stuff when she was reading the beginning part, which is more about what the dominatrix does. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, it's the author, right? It's not necessarily the character. And then, boy, does she know how Washington works. Well, mm-hmm. anybody can figure this out. I mean, you know, you, know, you watch the West Wing, right? You right. read the newspaper, 
And then you get the kernel of an idea, and you make sure, just like you said, that you have the wheels on the wheelchair correctly. Because otherwise that thing is going to fall off the road. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to carry your story. So you have yeah. to make sure that any facts you have, as you said, any specifics you have mm-hmm. are the real deal. And that's yep. really just sloppiness or laziness not to. And there was a number of plot um, choices that, that I tried that did dead end. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. The faction didn't work. It's like, okay, if this, then that. Nope, that wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of going back to the drawing board. And a lot of, in my case, I listened to a lot of books on tape of really top thriller writers. They're not, some of them are not very good writer-writers, but I wanted right. to see how do they unfold a story. How much mm-hmm. information do they start with? How much, do they, how much of the rope, if you excuse the expression, do they let out with each chapter? Right. To keep you interested in the plot, because you know there's sort of there's there's two tracks. The one track is the dominatrix track and what she's mm-hmm. doing with clients and how she feels about her profession and how she got into her profession, and what makes her so good at what she does. Um, a, a lot of this, that sort of aspect of it was influenced by a movie that I think is one of the really great thriller movies ever made, which was an Alan Pakula movie with Jane Fonda called Clute. Mm-hmm. And it was made years ago, and if you see, and it was with Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. And if you were to watch that movie now, I am not kidding you. A woman should not watch that movie alone at night. Mm-hmm. It is so scary, and not really anything so terrible happens. And she's mm-hmm. a very high-priced, very intelligent, apparently sort of well-brought-up call girl, uh-huh. and winds up in a passel of trouble. And Donald Sutherland sort of comes to her her aid and whoever is the villain is unclear amongst a number of men who had been her clients. But that kind of idea setting in motion somebody who's not who you'd expect to be a call girl. You know, it isn't the girl from the wrong side of the tracks with a coke habit, right? Mm-hmm. Who knows who becomes a call girl? Who knows who becomes a dominatrix? What makes somebody drawn to a profession in in the sex world, if you will, and what makes them good at it? I mean, that's worth thinking about even if you are one yourself. You know, you sort of, the whole idea that you'd go to a shrink to figure that out is sort of funny. I mean, other people can't figure out, you know, why they have a problem dieting. They might go to a shrink. But someone who is a, an amazing dominatrix and really a bright, self-aware person might say, how did I wind up doing this again? Mm-hmm. You know, because it's, no one had a gun to your head, right? I mean, things right. just evolve. So I think that that's... That's sort of fun to stop and and question why characters are who they are. You don't always see that in books that are kind of fast-paced, thriller-ish. Right. People wondering, you know, what makes them tick, asking themselves. Yeah. Because I think yeah. the reader would be doing that anyway, so the character might as well help them along. That's true. Now, you have two more books uh, planned. This is the first of a trilogy, so uh, tell us a little bit about the next two books in the series. Well, to be honest with you, I only know for sure about The Whipping Girl, which is the one that I'm working on now that's going to come out next year. Um, it will be at least a trilogy, uh, and I don't. And I'm fiddling around with titles for the third book, and the t- and I won't know what's going to happen in the third book until I write The Whipping Girl because I have the plot uh, mapped out. But as as I was saying earlier, we don't always know where the characters are going to take us or where the plot will go. Mm-hmm. But The Whipping Girl um, is kind of a cool, fun title 
because obviously the phrase is usually the whipping boy. Right. And the character Dominique, who is the following the money, the 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 not artist ends with a, a a very I think clever and fun caper kind of aspect around this enormous amount of money uh, that has been left behind by the senator who was in her dungeon to whom this accident happened, mm-hmm. and she's the life is something she's questioning and her place in the life. And she and the the title comes from and the story revolves around the fact that there's a client who wants to to be a top with her and she doesn't do that she's only mm-hmm. the top she doesn't do any bottom work and apparently um, she knows a, another very very expensive and and elite call girl uh, call girl slash dominatrix who will so she sends this potential client to this other woman all of them dealing with men who were there were there were years like this in beverly hills there was a a madam called madam claude who would provide call girls many of whom are now hollywood wives i mean not like the trashy ones on the tv show (laughs) but like Mm -hmm. the wives of really important studio executives and producers and stars and they were madam call claude call girls who got buckets of money for just going out to dinner with men I mean, back mm-hmm. in the 70s, we'd get $10,000 for spending the night with someone and not doing any acrobatics, you know, just sort of straightforward call girl, whatever that might be. Well, mm-hmm. um, those sort of men need to have really discreet providers of their pleasures because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, their lives would crumble. And this other dominatrix slash call girl is killed. and. Mm-hmm it's pretty clear to Dominique that it was probably this client. So how, so she, that was the whipping girl. And he, in various various ways that involve bondage and whipping, she's killed. And so Dominique feels this moral imperative to, without putting herself in too much jeopardy, help get some information to the people trying to find out who the killer is. Because mm-hmm. not only is she feeling incredibly culpable, but he'll obviously do it again. Right. He's one of those rogues, but not the rogue like this, you know, the 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 serial killer that's now in the papers so much, the one in Los Angeles where they have the huge yeah, number the of photos. Sleeper. Of, yeah, yes, the sleeper. Yeah, the sleeper killer. Sleeper, exactly. The grim sleeper, that's it, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, often those people are some weirdo who's actually, you know, works for the phone company by day, but by night is some total psycho freak like from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. But... Obviously, you could have someone like that who's a CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Who's mm-hmm. to say you couldn't, right? Yeah. And those oh, are yeah. the kind of customers she gets. So that's what starts the plot going, is that in giving someone else a client, that girl dies in her place. Sort of like, you know, gee, I missed the plane and the plane crashed. And you kind of have survivor guilt. But in this place, she's directly involved. and and um, And then, therefore, has to act as bait herself to try and, and bait this guy mm-hmm. and not put herself in too much jeopardy. So well, That um, sounds you know, interesting. interesting. That I sounds mean, like a good good sequel there, yeah. I, I think it should be fun. I'm looking forward to doing it because I don't honestly, other than sort of setting setting the trap for him and for her, know exactly what will happen. Truly and really, characters have the most, well, you know this, the most astounding way of taking charge of the story, mm-hmm. giving you their dialogue. You're like, this is scary, where did that idea come from? You know, who who, who said that? How did I? How oh, did yeah. I know to write that down? It's yep. it's, it's it's that whole tap into the the great 
you know, a stream of the unconscious that, that may flow from you to me and three-quarters of the way around the world. And if you tap into it, it's a pretty rich, deep river to mine. So, um, oh, it is. It definitely is. <laughs> so a, fu- a fun uh, – I've, I've found a couple of, of different fun titles for the third one, but, you know, first things first, right? you gotta mm-hmm. got to get the second one sort of done and wrapped up. But it's right. it's quite fun to think of a trilogy because, as you know, having written so many books, having a following for a character or a series of characters is really satisfying. And sometimes yes. – Readers find the second book before they find the first one, for whatever reason. Timing, yeah. topic, um, and then maybe they'll go back and find the first book second. Who's to say? Yep. They do but that. But somehow, yep. yeah, having a trilogy um, allows people to, you know when you're reading a book you really like and you get near the end and you're like, oh, damn, it's almost over. And if you and if it's a trilogy, it's like, okay, I'll keep reading because I know this is not the end of my of my time with these people, you know, it's going to go on to, to another book. So mm. it's fun to sort of carry ca- characters forward and let them have their their maturation and their character arcs and their development. It's nice. Yes. You know, you don't have to wrap it all up with a bow either. You can really leave the first book hanging, which this book is absolutely left hanging. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, you know, there's a commercial break and then you come back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we are. This hour has flown by. We've got seven minutes left. And um, tonight, for those of you who've been listening, we are talking to author India Wilson. And her uh, first book, The Knot Artist, is out. It's thenotartist.com. And that's uh, not with a K, just like it, you know, like not rope. Um, T-H-E-K-N-O-T-A-R-T-I-S-T.com. Thenotartist.com. Um, you guys need to go check it out. It's really cool. It's a uh, it's a erotic political thriller, so definitely kind of mixes a couple of genres in an interesting way. Um, and like this this hour has just flown by, and I appreciate having you on here. I hate to I hate to cut you off, but we're we're running towards no, the end. No, it's the great. Little, little I, voice in my ears saying you you know you, it's ten minutes left, seven minutes. I left. hate that feeling. <laughs> I hate that feeling. The yeah. fun thing is that that people can download and read the first chapter free off of the website, so that gives them a, awesome. a sense if they want to get the book or get the Kindle, they they don't have to take too much of a leap of faith. They can read the first chapter and see if they mm-hmm. like it. That's great. That's fantastic. Thank you so um, much, Timber, for having me here and for sharing all these ideas. It's it's really fun and interesting, and I wish you all the best with the radio show and with well, your work. Thank you, and I I hope you have great sales with that book. I'm going to be following it, uh, looking forward to the uh, sequel there too, and and the, and the third one in the trilogy. So uh, thanks for being with us tonight. So make sure everybody, um, make sure you head on over to thenotartist.com and check out her book. And like she just said, you can download the first chapter for free. It's available both as a trade paperback uh, for 19.95, and it's also available. Um, in ebook format. So if you like uh, like having a dead tree book in your hand, you can also get it that way too. So make sure you head on over there and it's got uh, information about the author and information about the book. And and uh, so head on over there, folks, and check that out. Um, we're down to five minutes. Uh, yes, in the chat room. Yeah. Hi, Anthony. I meant to say hi to you earlier and everybody else in the area. Women who behave never make history. And that's right. And I try to live by that rule. Um, <laughs> I try not to behave if I don't have to. Um, 
we are going to be here uh, the 23rd, which I know that's kind of crazy, but hey, I've never been accused of being quite totally sane. Um, we've got Arthur Sofio coming back for another chat because she's got another new book coming out, and I've got some other shows scheduled in the queue. You can go to blogtalkradio.com backslash Timber Dalton. That's Timber with a Y, T-Y-M-B-E-R Dalton. Um, you can also contact me at timberdalton at gmail.com. You can check out my website at timberdalton.com. Um, make sure you go check out. I've got a link uh, to the Amazon um, page for the Not Artist there on tonight's episode page. And you can also go back. If you came in a little bit late, you can go download the uh, the show from – it takes about 10 minutes or so. You can go download the show. Um, so you can hear our uh, talk again with author India Wilson. Um, and I'm going to have her back, too, when she has her second one out, because it really is a, a pretty cool book. They sent me a, um, an ARC file, and I don't like to talk too much about the books because I don't want to give away any spoilers, but it's definitely an interesting read and one that you should go check out. Um, yeah, in the chat room. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> Kermit the Frog. Oh, oh man, you guys are trying to crack me up here. Don't crack me up too bad, you guys. I'm on new meds here, so... <laughs> and I'm trying to keep the straight face as it is. Um, so thank you all for, for coming and listening tonight. Uh, like I said, check out the schedule on the blogtalkradio.com backslash Timber Dalton um, to see what I've got coming up next. We've got, uh, like I said, Sophia coming on the 23rd. I think I've got a show scheduled talking about publishing. Oh, for those of you in Florida... Keep an eye out on my website, those of you who are my little uh, kinky uh, blog talk radio peaks. Uh, yeah, AJ Johnson, we love cracking you up, Timber. Thanks a lot. Yes, frosted penis cakes. Yes, we're talking about frosted penis pastries in the uh, chat room tonight. Um, <laughs> um, in June, um, there is going to be an interesting gathering called The Bash um, in St. Pete. Uh, you can find more. If you're on FetLife, you can find out about Look for the Florida Bash. I believe the website is floridabash.com. Um, I'm, I might be doing a couple of seminars there, so keep an eye out if you are – of a, the kink-minded persuasion. Um, I'm going to be uh, probably doing a couple of lectures, at least one lecture about um, publishing erotica, so keep an eye out for that. Um, also, later in July, and I don't remember the exact dates, is FetishCon. Now, I'm not going to be presenting there or anything, but I am going to be there at FetishCon. So if anybody's deciding they want to attend FetishCon in Tampa, I, I go to that every year because I, I, I really enjoy meeting friends there and, and always get some pretty cool ideas. Uh, let me know because maybe we can uh, set up the time to meet or something, have a have a, a dinner or something either. So, every, oh yeah, you guys can make me laugh in person. You definitely can. Um, so, so uh, keep an eye out on uh, on uh, my site for that, and I'll put up more information as it becomes available. Also, we got – okay, I just got the 90-second cue in my ear. Um, keep an eye out on my Facebook page because I'm going to be having some announcements here in just a little bit, uh, about another week or so, about some books I got coming out in January. Um, some of you have been wanting a couple of my books uh, in print that have not been previously available in print, and so I've got some exciting news to share about that, so that's pretty cool. Um, You've been listening to Oralingus with Timber Dalton. I'm Timber Dalton, intelligent but dirty. Uh, thank you all for joining.
tonight. Um, I think, yes, no, you guys, trust me, you guys would not embarrass me. And no, I would not die if y'all showed up in person. Believe me, I probably could embarrass all of y'all. So, <laughs> trust me, you guys obviously didn't listen to the episode with Mr. Blackie. Okay, believe me, if I can't get, you guys can't embarrass me. So, trust me about that one. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. If you haven't listened live, then you're missing out the fun in the uh, in the purview uh, chat room here with all my purview little chat feeds. So thanks a lot for listening, and it's been fun. I will see you on the 23rd. Good night. And happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah.